We're in 1 Thessalonians. The passage Nick just read is where we're going to be for the next few moments. I do hope you've got that Bible open in front of you. This is God's Word, and since it's God's Word, He's going to do something now. So He works by His Word. He created the world by His Word, and He's going to recreate us in this moment. So as He does, and because it's so important that He does the work, He does the heavy lifting by His Word, uh, we need to ask for Him to do that now in prayer. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we have sung that we are your people, your children, and we as sheep of your flock recognise your voice as you speak to us in the scriptures. So as I come to preach your word, we're asking now that you would reach us where we are in our hearts, that you would give me that unction by your spirit so to speak now with exhorting words encouraging words as Paul writes to the Thessalonians that your word would change us and shape us to walk in a manner worthy of you our God in this moment we pray you would call us into your kingdom ministry and for those still outside by your spirit call them into your own kingdom and glory through your son for in Jesus name we pray amen Well, if you want to hear God speak, open a Bible. And you'll see in the service sheet, in the middle of that booklet, there's a sermon outline. Um, It's my fault, it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what Nick read is the right reading. But that's where we are. And if you want to hear God speak into culture, open a Bible. Many of us have all sorts of cultures going on, subcultures in our lives. We live in Australian culture, which is a fairly broad cultural tent these days, which is part of world culture, and we have never been more kind of joined to world culture but in a worldwide pandemic, and that we're all going through a similar thing. But we also have subset cultures of that. So you might have a workplace culture or a home life culture, whether you be on the site or in the office, at home duties... We all have cultures that we are part of, that we imbibe what we curate and perhaps even create. And culture is something that often is not looked at deeply, but is always there, and it goes deeper than where we look often. There's an old quote by business guru, he's since died now, his name is Peter Drucker, and his quote is helpful, I think, for our workplaces our families, our social circles, and even and especially our churches. And it goes like this. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. That is, you might have, let's say, for example, a church. I'm just going to pick a church out of the blue. Uh, Colour scheme is blue. Let's pick our church. Reforming Church, you might have, Reforming Church might have a strategy. Um, We're not really big into kind of being gurus on strategy because we think Jesus gives us the strategy. But but say we had on our website or on our wall, and we have a motto and we we have this on our website and maybe one day on a wall, if if we, uh, we put it on a wall, we could put it here or there or up there. But whether you have a strategy on your website or written on a wall, it won't make a lick of difference 
unless it's embodied. Because your strategy might say, your vision, your workplace culture might even have written on their website, it might be, our culture is that we love everybody here. But then when someone visits or someone is new and they come along and they soon start sniffing out, they can tell, can't they? You can see, is what's written on the wall or on the website true of here? Is that embodied here? Is it believed? Is it part of shared values? Is it the culture? Because if it's written on the wall or on a website and says, this is how we treat people, and then people come and it's not how they're treated, there's a, a, a really big chasm between what is true and what is not, and that's the difference culture makes. For example, um, there are tech giants who have made themselves more famous, not just because they're big, but because of their supposed culture. Now, hesitant to say Google because, you know, we live on Google these days, it's almost like intravenous, you know, my brother-in-law, he's, he, he can tell Google to turn the lights on in his house, I think it's crazy, but anyway, he does it. Um, so hesitant to say Google out loud because our website's on Google, maybe they'll censor us, but, um, but Google is famous for having a culture, supposedly, where you can go along as an employee and they've got bean bags and they've got, you know, kind of foosball tables and get your coffee whenever you want, work when you want, that's the kind of said thing that's written, that's a strategy on their website, on their wall, except it's also recently been famous for lots of people saying that's not true of working at Google. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Our culture matters. It matters because, as we say, it matters if we walk the talk. And it matters even more with life in lockdown. Why? I wondered if you've noticed, you probably have, our community is craving, is craving real community, real community of love, and a culture of community that is, they haven't seen it yet or recognised it yet, but a gospel culture. Our community, our city Bendigo, our region, is actually craving something they probably haven't been able to put words to yet, they haven't seen it written on a wall, maybe not even seen a website, but they're actually craving a community of grace. They're craving a community that is of gospel, of good news, in a world of bad news. They're craving somewhere to go, someone to know where they could go along and they're going to be accepted and loved and cared for and when they mess up, where the people in that culture are going to say, oh, welcome, we're the mess up club. We've got cards. Lockdown life has meant people are craving that community. They're hungry for it. They're hungry for that kind of culture. And to put a label on it, to put a, give it a name that they probably don't know yet, they're actually craving gospel culture. Welcome to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, friends. This is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is all about. As you've heard Nick read it and you've got it in front of you there, uh, this is a letter from Paul to the church at Thessalonica. It's one of his earliest letters. So very on early in the Apostle Paul's ministry, as he goes with his team, planting churches, sharing the gospel, he writes a letter to this church. And in this letter, we see in chapter 2, three things about our culture of Christ. Three things. We see our culture of Christ matters 
People are craving it. And it matters that we have, firstly, our motivation for the gospel. We have that right, in the right place, from the right heart posture. Secondly, we share our life in gospel ministry. And thirdly, we actually keep the goal, the main thing, the main thing in our gospel culture. It's so easy today. We are so fractured. We are so full of debate, discussion, disagreement. It's hard to keep the main thing the main thing. But let me tell you, if it's gospel culture, it will not just eat all the problems for breakfast. It will serve us food that lasts forever. We need to get back to gospel and gospel culture, friends. 1 Thessalonians 2 is going to help us. Let's dive in. Verse 1, where Nick started, we see here, our motivation for gospel ministry is outlined by Paul. And he has to outline it. As you step into chapter 2, we step into some complicated relationships with Paul and the Thessalonians. If you look at Paul and you read, we've been through, we'll do it again, we've been through letters like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul has a lot of complicated relationships with people because why? We've all got complicated relationships. Relationships are complex. And Paul has a complex relationship with the Thessalonians. It's pretty good though. I mean, compared to the Corinthians who are comparing him to all sorts of mega churches and super apostles, Paul's relationship with Thessalonians is not like that. Now, what's going on for him in the background, which is why you kind of read the first few verses and go, what is going on? Why is Paul talking like this? Because what's going on is, what happened at Thessalonica has meant people are talking about Paul. Isn't this the way? People always talk about people. It's, just, it's one of the things that I'm looking forward to in heaven. It won't actually be like that. But here in this complicated relationship, remember, back in Acts 17, we saw last week, Paul, when he went to Thessalonica for the first time, he preached Christ, he reached out by preaching out with the message of Christ. People are converted, they come to Christ, the church has started, it's really, really new, they're really young Christians. Well, listen to this reforming church's history. Really young Christians, small bunch of them, but he could only be there for three weekends because... The rest of the city hunted him out of town. They stirred up riots, they stirred up all sorts of accusations. He was only there three weekends, Paul and Silas. Imagine that. Your, your, your founding pastor and his co-elders are there with you three weekends. The church has started and they're gone. What do you do? Sounds like a reality TV show gone bad, doesn't it? What do you do? Well, it's up to the Thessalonians. We're going to need some preachers and leaders and we're going to work it out. But in the background, all their family, you know, imagine getting converted and the rest of your family saying, it's going to be weird. You might know this experience, mightn't you? You're the only Christian in your family. He's in a phase. She's found some weird friends. I mean, they're nice, they're Christians and all. But imagine the pressure of that in your own family. Imagine the pressure of your friends at work. Why aren't you going to kind of, you know, you're not laughing at our jokes anymore, buddy. What's going on? That kind of societal pressure, that's going on for the Thessalonians. And their friends, if you read between the lines, which is, you know, we're doing exegesis still, but you read the lines that Paul gives, it seems... People around the Thessalonian church are saying, Paul's only here three weekends and he's gone. 
this gospel you're going for, this message of Jesus, are you really going to stick with it? You look, you look at this, verse 1. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our gods to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. What's going on? Paul is saying, you remember what happened. You were there. I was there. He had been shamefully treated at Philippi, beaten up, thrown in prison. Now, Paul could have said, look, what happens in Philippi stays in Philippi. But he doesn't. He's honest. He says, you know what happened? I came to Philippi. I didn't come as one of those ministry charlatans. Big pomp and ceremony. And the posters go up. Look who's coming to town. Big conference. going to be amazing because he's an amazing person. Paul's not like that. He comes, he walks into Thessalonica and he's still got the scars from being beaten up and the, the, the wristbands on his wrist from being in prison. And he comes with the gospel. And as he comes into town without reputation preceding him, he comes in speaking about Jesus. He says, you remember this. Paul's whole life is an open book. He's honest. And as Nick read earlier from Acts 16, that tells what happens. When Paul was thrown in prison, we miss this. We need to see this. We need to feel this. We think of Paul and Silas in prison and, and, and we kind of think, oh yeah, wow, that's great. That's kind of Martin Luther King stuff. But Paul uses a key word here in verse 2. He says, we'd already suffered and we're going, yeah, suffering. And then he says, shamefully treated. You see, do you know anyone who's been to prison? I do. But do we go around and say, yeah, I've got a friend who's been in prison, you should meet this guy, he's been in prison, it's great. We don't do that, do we? Why? Because we still treat prison with an element of shame. So Paul's been in prison. You mean your pastor's been in prison? Oh, is this, is this a legit church? He's a failure. He did, didn't do a good enough job. Ends up in prison. It's got shame associated with it. So when the Thessalonian, when the Thessalonians who are Christians have family members over dinner, friends at work saying, "Oh, you're you're associated with Paul. He 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 he's an ex-con." He's a convict. It's got shame. The gospel has attached with it, not just the shame of you're going through a phase, but the shame of, but you're hanging out with those kind of people. But Paul is honest. And he says, all the talk going on about me might have then attached to that questions about my motivation for ministry. As Paul reflects upon his gospel ministry, this is an opportunity for us to reflect on our motivations for gospel ministry. And I want to say this at this point, it's really important. In the New Testament, there is no difference between a pastor being called into ministry and a church member being called into ministry. Uh, we've used this language of calling, we've turned it into something that's not. The Bible never says, well, somehow Russ had a special call, Russ had somehow God speak to him to be a pastor, 
and then no one else has got this. No, no, that, that's elitism. That is not the way the Bible speaks. When the Bible speaks of calling, it does not speak of someone being called to be a pastor and someone not called to be a pastor by some inward call. When the Bible speaks of calling, as we'll see in this passage in verse 12, every Christian is called into gospel ministry. Every Christian. When you became a Christian, you got called into kingdom ministry. And we have a body with different gifts. And pastors and elders are to equip the congregation, Ephesians 4 verse 12, for the work of ministry. And Paul here says, let's talk about our motivation for gospel ministry. Paul says, gospel ministers, be that pastors of a church, elders, small group leaders, everyone. We are in the business of truth, verses 3 and 4, and therefore we've been entrusted with the gospel. Let's read verse 3 again. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. It's God's message. We, we are his people, once dead in our sins and now raised up with Christ in heaven. We are spiritually there and earthly here and our role now is to be able to share that gospel with others that powerfully change lives. Which means our motivation from ministry needs to move away from temptations that people are saying kind of temptations. Notice this in verses 5 and 6. Paul says, our motivation for gospel ministry, mine, he says, all of us should be never with flattering speech. Paul says they didn't come with flattering speech, but instead words of encouragement. Friends, there's a key difference here we need to recognise. There is a difference between flattery and encouragement. Flattery. What's flattery? Um, You can tell when someone's flattering you, I think. Not always, and I've had to work out the difference sometimes, but when someone's using flattery, I mean, here's encouragement. Encouragement first is, encouragement, you can tell encouragement straight up because it's words of love and meaning. It's used to serve someone. So someone encourages you by saying, thank you for that. I'm encouraged by that. They want to encourage you. That's encouragement. That's that's great. What's the difference between encouragement and flattery? Flattery is, it's different. Flattery is not speaking truth. It's usually lies and manipulative words because someone's flattering you to get something from you. Encouragement is all about encouraging you, building you up and leaving it there. Paul who says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 25 in this, and Luke 10 verse 7, it's Jesus who says this as well. Jesus himself says the labour deserves his wages. Paul says that, yes, accounts for that. This is the same one, the same Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul saying this. In other words, local churches should support their local pastors in doing this. That's absolutely right. Paul says this. The same one who teaches his Old Testament principles says this. Really important. Often in our culture, we react against the 10% idea. We forget who came up with that. Who came up with the 10% idea of giving in the Old Testament, which Paul takes Old Testament principles and puts into the new? Who came up with that? God did. God came up with it. Paul outlines that. He outlines the whole thing of God. And then he says, but get this. I don't do it for the money. 
Paul says, I would rather go tent making in the evenings so I can preach the gospel in the daytime or vice versa. And friends, I would do the same. I've got a semi-license. I'll go wool classing. I've still got my certificate. I would do that. I don't do this for the money. If I was going to do a job for the money, I'd do something else. But some people in ministry do do it for the money. Why? How? How could you possibly make lots and lots of money out of ministry? In the Presbyterian system, it's very regulated. We're very exposed, transparent. Our budgets are open. What I get paid, it's all on the screen, all in the booklet. Come to an AGM near you this season. But how is it possible that Paul could say, we don't come with flattery, so therefore we don't come with greed? How is it possible he has to say that? Is it, is it possible that there are some ministries that come with flattering words to make money? Have you heard of it? Have you seen it? Yes. It's pandemic. There are ministries, and what really I think is disturbing is to often set themselves outside of the context of a local church with accountability, outside of an eldership, outside of a presbytery that oversees things. Say, What's going on over there? There are ministries that have whole created platforms that are just driven by coming with words of flattery and then asking for money, to make money because they're greedy. And Colossians, Paul writes, greed is idolatry. Paul says, that's not how we minister the gospel. I didn't do it for money, friends. I don't do it for money. Why does he do it? He says in verse 6, by the way, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but Paul here shows the difference between commanding and leading. See, it's often tempting for Christian leaders, and that might be a small group leader. It might be a ministry apprentice or an intern. It might be a pastor. It's tempting to fall on your title, isn't it? And demand, as an apostle of Christ or a small group leader, I'm just going to say, you just need to do this. I'm going to tell you to do this. Paul here shows the difference between commanding and leading. See, commanding is to use authority, and sometimes we use it up. Once you use it up, it's all gone. But leading is to love. Leading is to get down low. This is where preaching is shaped. The difference between preaching that is commanding and just relying on human authority or preaching that relies on love. Preaching that relies on human authority just has to raise the voice and tell you to stop it. Just stop it. And wave the finger at you and just say stop it or do this. And that is relying totally on human authority alone and it won't work beyond Wednesday. Me telling you to do or don't do something won't work ultimately in the end. You'll feel, let me call it, convicted, but it won't work. That conviction is just probably guilt. No. Fellow preachers, we don't guilt people into anything. We grace them. We give them something they need, not human authority, but lead them with love to the one who is magnificent with his authority and yet comes with lowliness. And that's Christ. We do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ. And we share Christ, which means, secondly, we share our lives. Look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
Friends, we've got some nursing mothers here. Some of them are here, some of them are over there, some of them are in the room there with one-way windows, so we can't see them. That's good and right. But have you ever seen a nursing mother with her own children? You can't find a more gentle picture, can you? Yes, she'll fiercely defend, but there's no more gentle picture than a nursing mother with her own children. Because she has to. Even if the child is screaming, she has to, out of love, hold that child and prevent the child hurting itself. Let alone she wanting to hurt that child. That child is constantly demanding and in need. And Paul picks up an image that Jesus uses, and he uses it here, of being gentle and lowly. This is how I was with you, Paul says, to the Thessalonians. This is how we minister to one another. Verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had come very dear to us. Friends, the church is more than an event. It's actually not an event. The church is a gathering. It's a family. It's a people. It's not an organization. It's got structures, but their purpose is to serve the family. A family has structures. It's dinner time at whatever time it is in your home. Your housemates, your household, that's your kind of household family. You have an arrangement of who's going to buy food this week and who's going to cook. There's structures there, but it's, it's not that we serve the structures, the structures serve us. It's about a family. And we come towards one another to share our lives as a family. Gospel preaching is about preaching Christ that we share life with. And friends, here is the problem that we're seeing more and more with how celebrity ministries and celebrity preachers are falling down like dominoes. I mean, celebrity preaching and celebrity ministries have been always around. They're around in Paul's time. Read 2 Corinthians. The second half of that letter is about Paul critiquing the problem of them. But in the late 90s, ever since the 50s, late 90s, early 2000s, it became the big thing, especially in reform circles. I'm talking our circles. And we elevated people. Here is us who say, God gets all the glory, and what do we do? We gave humans glory beyond that they could handle, and then they fell further than they should have. Because we put them up there. We put people up there with parachurch ministries that were worldwide and we gave them no accountability and all the money in the world and all the glory that should have gone to God and then they fell one after the other. You've only got to look around. I'm not going to name them. Just look around, Google this. They are falling like dominoes and here's the problem. Ministries that are built upon a platform that don't share life with people in the context of a local church are unhealthy. In the Bible, you do not see such a ministry. They are not instituted by Christ. Ministry is to be sharing the gospel as we share life. It's to know people. However big or small our church is, our plan, our prayer as elders is, we will never be in a situation where we will not know you by name and meet with you. If you're a member and you're a guy, I will meet with you and read the Bible with you. 
that women too will do this. We will know you. We will share life together. We will pray for you. I will know what's going on in your life and I'll ask you. At times you'll feel like, it's, I can't say because Russ has got stuff going on. We'll say, let's just share together. Let's just share life. Let's pray and cry together. That's gospel ministry. It's not an elevation or an elitism that separates you and your leaders, your shepherds. The shepherds, if I can borrow a farming illustration, because yes, you know I love them, you should smell like you've been in the catching pen. You should smell like you've been in the shearing shed. You should smell like you've been with a sheep, because by the way, you're a sheep as well. Shepherd, leader, you are a sheep as well. We should smell like we've been around each other, sharing life together. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. Mark these words. Any more ministries that get elevated to have glory rather than God like we've seen before will fall one day. There are problems that are pandemic with them. It's worldwide. It's massively unhealthy. And it's not the New Testament shape of church or gospel ministry. It's not. We share our lives together and that's so important. Imagine a church that has a culture where men don't just get together and talk about whatever men can talk about, but they get together and talk about manliness in Christ. Imagine a church that you might know somewhere where women get together over women's brunches and small groups and coffee catch-ups and where the conversation is of Christ. Where the main thing, him, is the main thing for us. Friends, it's why we have gathered worship. It's why the little things matter in terms of curating culture. Do you know why we are sheep, uh, a sheep, lots of sheep on the brain. Do you know why our seats are shaped like this? We've intentionally shaped our seat design because this church is not meant to be an audience. It's not an audience where all the stuff happens up here and you're just kind of sitting there passively. No, we we intentionally do this and want to keep doing this more and more because church is together, it is family, and it is ministering to one another. So you can see each other and sing towards each other. That's why our service sheets, by the way, have scripture in them for the call to worship. It's why it's shaped by scriptures, designed that way intentionally to share the gospel, to share life. That's why we have call and response. Because we want to get into our minds and our hearts and believe and have a culture of actually speaking the gospel to one another in our time of need. And friends, when is our time of need? It's every time. It's almost need a clock around the clock around here. And let me tell you, that's me as well. That's why we have reforming groups, why we have teams. For ultimately, here's the goal. Our goal of gospel ministry is to look at one another and say, I want you to be more like Christ. This is the goal. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil, we work night and day that we might not become a burden to you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul would do this not for money. He would work so hard for this. His goal is not to flatter or get something out of them. Paul's goal is for them to be in Christ, to believe in Jesus and to be more like Jesus. That's the end goal, to believe in Christ and be more like Christ. Verse 10. 
You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless we are in our conduct toward you as believers. The Thessalonians know this. They saw this. How much work is involved? When someone calls you up to see how they're going or pray for you, it might think that's always easy. It's not. We might be the fifth person they've called, or the tenth, but when we do, we're calling because we love you. We want to see you growing in Christ believing in Christ and being like him. And we do it because ministry is not about us, it's about every one of us seeing Christ. Verse 11, Paul uses another paternal, parental analogy. Verse 11, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul used the illustration of mothers earlier, and now he talks about fathers. What is the reason for using this illustration? Paul is saying here, family figures like mothers and fathers, they don't have kids and then hire a nanny and say, see you later. They get involved. They get involved in their children's lives. Can I say at this point, pastors, elders, if you want to be an elder... In this church, if you want to be a small group leader, this is really important actually, if you want to be an elder in this church, where are we going to notice people who are future elders or future leaders or future women leaders or small group leaders, where are we going to notice them? Where are we going to notice future pastors? You can say I've been called into pastoral ministry all you want, but where are we going to notice it? Do you serve in kids ministry? Are you willing to serve in kids' ministry? Because if you're not, we're probably not going to see that sort of pastoral care in you. If you can't serve in kids' ministry and get down low like Jesus does and, and be blessing to children by sharing the gospel with them, why would we give you a family of God to care for? That's a leadership 101 from me for now. Because Paul says, that's ministry. It's getting gentle and low with people. Nothing is too low for the gospel minister, for the Christian. You're never too beyond this, too high for this, too much with a title for this. And then he finishes verse 12 where we get to finish this morning. Now verse 12 is worded, I think, It's fascinating. It's worded for those of us who have experienced unhealthy culture before. Look at verse 12. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you. And now you're feeling like if you've ever been in a situation, a church culture, a workplace culture, where it's just you've got to do better. And we're watching you and you've got to be better. And if you're not, why aren't you? If you've been in that kind of culture... Already you're feeling it inside, aren't you? You're kind of feeling that perhaps there's some sort of flashback going on for you. It's just really feeling a bit tense and awful. You're feeling, here it comes, here it comes. I'm going to be told I'm not good enough. I'm going to be told how bad I am. I'm going to be told I'm a failure. And then he says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. Did you notice that? It's not the other way around. Notice this. It's not, he doesn't say, we exhorted and encouraged you and charged you to be more worthy. So 
so that God may call you into his own kingdom. He doesn't say, we told you, you need to get worthy, worthy of God's calling so he'll call you in. He says, you're already called. You're already called into his kingdom. You're already there. You're safe and sound. He loves you. And all we're doing is encouraging you. Remember that, friends. Because I think he's our biggest struggle. When it comes to God's grace, our biggest struggle, when, it, when we know we've been called into God's kingdom, is tomorrow believing it. Is tomorrow believing it when we fail? Is tomorrow believing it when we're not together as a church for our sent worship? We just struggle believing grace. This is my testimony. My testimony is one of, I grew up in a Christian home, faithful parents. I, I put my trust in Jesus roughly about 17. There was no particular day. It was a kind of a slow, gradual burn for me. And that slow, gradual burn grew, but then it didn't kind of fan into a flame because I struggled with grace until someone sent me down and opened up passages like this and said, you've already been called. You are one of his people. By grace, you are saved through faith. Grace blows away guilt. Friends, we're already beaten up each week, aren't we? You are already beaten up enough in your workplace. Do better. Not meeting targets. Not organised enough. You forgot something again. We are already beaten up enough. And so when you come here, you receive something better. Grace. The grace of gospel ministry. And that's how we encourage one another with these words. This, we pray, is our culture. But there's something important to see about a gospel culture. There's been a lot of talk lately about gospel culture. I think it's good and helpful. So we don't just have gospel doctrine, we have gospel culture. I think the people writing these things, it's really helpful. It's all very well us in the Reformed Church to say we love the doctrines of grace, but we can say we love the doctrines of grace, and what happens if we even had that written on the wall? We love the doctrines of grace, and you came along, and people didn't talk to you, or they didn't show you grace. You would say, they don't believe it, actually. They don't believe the doctrines of grace. They don't love the doctrines of grace. And here's where I think the difference is. I think it's good to say gospel doctrine, gospel culture, but it's more than that. Because the word gospel can be used, and Paul uses it here, but it can be used in a way that we just think content. Don't we? We're a gospel-centered ministry. We're a gospel-centered church. We send gospel ministries and have gospel-centered books, gospel-centered articles, gospel-centered training. We're gospel mindset. What happens if you keep saying that over and over again? Everyone thinks the culture of curating is this. It's all about content. But it's not. The gospel's not about content. It's about a person. We're not to be like some content that's written on the wall or website. Here's the tip. We're to be like a person. And he's not written on the wall or a website. The content is about him, but his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And that's why we're at a culture of a person, a culture of Christ. You want to know how to act around here? To be walking in a manner worthy? It's not to be a better person yourself. It's to look to Jesus and think, how can I be more like Jesus? And here's the beauty of Jesus. Because as you think, how can I be more like Jesus? I mean, our, our, our kind of mission, mission, vision, values statement, whatever we mean by mission, vision, values, it's always in, in the kind of mission, vision, values world, it's all confusing as to which one is which. Whatever. We just get two things Jesus said. He says, firstly, 
love God and love others. And secondly, make disciples who love God and love others. That's our thing. That's what we do. You want to know what we're about? We're about what Jesus says to do. Two things. We combine them together. But here's the thing about that. Who here does that perfectly? How are you going at loving God? I've had a week of not loving Him well, often. How are you going at loving other people? Fail at that too. How are you going at making disciples? Doing my best, but it's a struggle. You see, the very one we are to be like in a culture of Christ is the very one who says, I can see this, you're going to fail at it. So He comes and He lives the perfect life I couldn't live, that you couldn't live. He comes. He comes with a motivation of love. He comes, like Paul says, to share his life. He comes to give his life. We crave a community of gospel culture. I think what we crave in our society, whether we've named it or not, we actually crave Christ. We crave a person like that and a community of people that are like him and a community of people that will say and admit, you know, in our culture, he's here, we're failures. That we can say openly, you know what, you come to Reforming Church, we, the pastor, often wrong, always weak. And totally, let me tell you about Jesus, because he loves failures like me, like you. That's our culture. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him who is our saviour, he's our Lord, and he is our model. And when we don't follow the model well and our culture is not like him, we just go back to point A, he's our saviour and Lord, and repeat. Thank you that we can repeat, we can repent, we can rejoice, we can trust in Jesus. We're praying now that our church culture would be a culture of Christ, that we'd be like him more and more, that we'd believe in him and be like him and that all glory would go to Christ as we enjoy Christ. And today we pray that as we have morning tea together, and it's been a little while since we've been able to do this, but as we have it together, that we would have those conversations, not over the best coffee in town, although we're thankful it's pretty good, but that we would have those life-changing conversations again those conversations that would curate a culture here like Christ, that we won't fully realise how powerful that has been until heaven to come. Until then, we are ready for the return of Christ. In Jesus' name, with grateful hearts, we say, Amen.